Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the book of Micah. This lesson was presented by Mr. Lawrence Jeffrey on December 27, 2020, during Sunday School. The lesson's title is The Coming Defeat and Destruction and discusses Micah chapter 1. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Let's pray, and then we will uh, get into our text, back into Micah 1. Uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord God, for, for today, for uh, your day, Father God, still in this Advent season, as we think about the Word becoming flesh, Father, Lord, we, we understand, uh, well, <laughs> to the best of our ability, Lord, we understand um, through faith what you've done for us, Father God, and you've called us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, Lord. But the fact that he's still a man that God took on flesh, Lord, is one of the most profound mysteries where we could spend all eternity, and we probably will spend all eternity pondering everything that that means, Lord. It is how... We need to understand the world itself, the world that you made, because it was all made for this purpose. Lord, and as we look into your word, help us put flesh to it, Lord. Help us see it uh, as real through the eyes of faith, Father. As Jerry and I were just discussing, Father, please help us to understand and apprehend uh, what you're telling us about how you made and shaped this world and how you interact with it so that we might live in it properly as your people to do uh, your work here, Father God. You've called us for a very specific purpose and you've given us a very specific task and you've given us a handbook, Father. Uh, Please help us to understand it and help us to uh, understand what it is that we're to be doing. And the only way we can understand that is by understanding who you are, Father God, how you've made us, and how you've made this world. Please open our eyes to see, and our ears to hear, and our hearts, Father, to understand. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Right. Yes, because, again, it was the Advent season, right? still is, I should say. And earlier on, if I was smart, I would have timed it better. But we would be either in Micah 5, when we're still in verse 5 of chapter 1, <laughs> or we'd just be discussing, um, I would have gone back and discussed the chapter 1, verse 1, about the Logos, right? The word of the Lord that came to Micah. You know, I really, truly and have no idea where we are in chapter 1, so I'm just going to pick up. Where uh, I think I think we made it to verse five. I'm pretty sure we did go go through verse five. Matter of fact, I know we did. Okay, so I do know where we are. But, anyways, that word that became flesh. 
and that word that appeared to Micah of Morsha is one and the same, right? It's, it is Christ himself. It is the second person of the Trinity, the pattern for all of creation, right? That's what we said just as a reminder the Hebrew understanding, the Hebrew conception of that is debar, right? That's the word in the Hebrew and in Greek in the Septuagint. It is logos, and we know the logos became flesh. Now, the logos has many, many different applications, all of them true and all of them important. Word, logic, reason, it is the ordering of the cosmos. It's what makes cosmos cosmos and not chaos, right? It's cosmos or chaos in terms of the Greek understanding. The, the word cosmos, the way when we see that in the uh, New Testament as world, is translated word, for God so loved the world, right? For God so loved the cosmos. Um, he didn't die for our sins, but only but the sins of the whole world, the cosmos. Now, when we understand that word cosmos we just think world and a lot of times we think just the people in the world we we interpret that in our heads that way but cosmos in the greek conception of it is very big it is very large it should bring to our minds an ordered beauty in in all of creation right god so loved that that he sent his son to die right and we are the heads of that we're the ones that God put in charge over that as his image, being made in the image of God again, is acting as God's vice regents on this earth. We're ruling in God's that we're stewards of the cosmos. We're to take the ordered cosmos, the ordered world that God made, and further order it, right? Bring it to its completion, bring it to its full consummation. That's, what, that's our task. Um, as his people. But that word that became flesh, that, that logos, that is the pattern for everything, right? That is the way that we should understand everything, all things, you know? We should see Christ in everything because he is the archetype of it. He's the, the one that everything was patterned after. Uh, we spoke a lot about that. So if we move on from here, we're going to keep those things in mind and keep looking at this um, in a manner that conforms to that literary structure that I gave you at the beginning. And if you don't remember what it is, hopefully you took notes. If you didn't, you can go back and you can listen to that part of the introduction. Um, But we did make it to verse 5. So we'll we'll read, um, let's start with verse 2. And just read on. Let's go perhaps to verse 7. And we'll discuss that as well. I know Anthony had to go and do his thing. But he asked something specific before. um, When I spoke a little bit about verses um, 5, 6, and 7. Specifically, I believe, verse 6. But uh, I'll talk about that. Because he did ask a very good question. It's important. So let's just read. And then we'll discuss it. If you guys have questions, again, please, I think it'd be very helpful if you ask them because a lot of the things that I'm discussing, I know, is not something that is usually or regularly discussed. 
or these are not things that you would think about on a daily basis. You know, everybody's just living their lives, and when you read something, your mind is not going to the places that I'm taking it, I am sure, you know. But uh, if you do have questions, if I say something like, how did you get from there to there, right, just please ask, and I will explain um, my thinking in, on the matter or my logic, and, you know, perhaps I need to be corrected on something. But regardless, let's read. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. All right, so we spoke a lot about God coming down out of his holy uh, place, right? Coming down from the holy mountain, from that holy temple. We spoke a great deal about that, and we're described it in terms of seeing a spiritual reality that does stand behind the world that God made. Because again, <laughs> God treading the high places of the earth, the temple is not high. I mean, it is. It's on a mountain. It's on, you know, it's in Jerusalem on that mount. But there are higher mountains there. But this is still described as higher still. Well, it, the, God does that intentionally, you know, because, again, there is a spiritual reality that stands behind um, the physical reality that we live in. And we discussed what it means when the mountains melt under him and the valleys split open, right? Dealing with the men in Samaria and Jerusalem, specifically, God takes the high in Samaria and brings them low, he takes the low and brings them even lower still, right? That was one way uh, we looked at that. And then um, we saw how the sin of Israel and the sin of Judah are their great cities, are their capitals, right? Mike is very concerned about justice. He's very concerned about the leadership of these peoples, right? These are God's people, and the leaders uh, have a very strict responsibility in leading the people well, so God judges them very harshly. So let's look at how God judges them, or what he says about the judgment that he's going to inflict upon them, right? Beginning in verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pull down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. 
All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a, the fee of a prostitute they shall return. All right, so verse 6 begins the witness of Yahweh, right? God calls all of the earth in a sense, right? We spoke about what that could mean. God calls all of the earth to pay attention, the people of God, right? In this sense, earth as opposed to sea, right? To pay attention and all that's it. The Lord's going to be a witness against Israel. He's going to be a witness against his people. And he's going to come down from his holy temple. And so now, here begins the witness of Yahweh. What he's going to do here. And it, it deals with the consequences of the sins of Israel. It's a sort of deconstruction of the land. Not a decreation, but it's a deconstruction. The land will be given back over to wilderness, but it's going to remain in the possession of men. And Samaria will be no more. Samaria was founded on idolatry and bloodshed, and God will not let that stand. Right? So, that's what um, specifically what Anthony asked about. I said this is deconstruction language and not decreation language. There's, when God judges, he uses pictures from creation, right? The stars will fall from the sky and all of those sorts of things. That language is very specific in terms of decreation. God is going to rip apart the fabric of the world that he made. If you want to see what that looks like, turn with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 34, and we'll look at that, and we'll compare it with this. He, you know, this is, again, for, specifically for Anthony, because he asked about this, so I hope he does listen to this later. Um, but again, it's something that is important, and I think we should understand it. Good. Could I just make one, one observation? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't believe you would be seeing the planting of the vineyards. And that's the point. That's exactly correct. You wouldn't be seeing the planting of the vineyards. We're, let's look at what he says here. This is about the judgment on Edom, specifically, in Isaiah 34. And we'll compare the two. And we'll see. Because, again, what we're doing is looking to see how to deal with his created order. You know how God judges? This is it. If you want to understand what's going on to us Right now, in this time, we should understand these things. These things are important. They're not abstract concepts. It's a reality that we're living through as we speak. Are we living through a deconstruction or are we living through a decreation? What's God doing to us? How severe is the punishment that we're going to have to endure for our sin, right? So let's look and see what it says here, right? In uh, verse... 1 of chapter 34, the book of Isaiah, says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. See, here is God is bearing witness against, well, he's calling the witness, I'm sorry, he's calling the nations to be a witness, right? Before he says, he's going to be a witness against the earth in Micah, right? And that earth, that land there, was specifically talking about Israel. Here, he's calling the nations to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it. 
the world and all that comes from it. See, context matters. How does he speak? For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as the leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So that language that he's just used in the first four verses was specifically targeted to Edom, right? The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Right. right. That's priestly imagery, right? That's, God is talking about what is the blood of bulls and goats, lambs and goats? Uh, what is the fat of the kidney of rams? These are sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus, right? And he's saying that this is specifically Edom. What does that say to you? What does that tell you? What is God saying to you there? What is, what is specifically is he saying? This is something that's also very important in understanding our own salvation. Well, he's saying, remember, what is a lamb when he brought it to the temple to be slain? What is that? It is a sacrifice. But it's you, right? It's your substitute. So when you brought that lamb or goat to be sacrificed, you laid your hand on its head, and it took your sin, and you killed it, and the priest burned it on the altar, right? And it bore your sin. Well, here... The lambs and, and goats and rams are the people of Edom. That is your salvation, right? You can either be the sacrifice or the lamb could be the sacrifice. But your sin will be dealt with. Your sin will be punished, right? That's what it says. And that's the truth, right? And this goes, if we take communion, right, and we eat, this applies to us as well as believers. We know that Christ is our sacrifice. He bore our sin. However, when you are eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ and you do it worthily, I'm not saying that there's a sacrifice being made for you. Sacrifice was made once for all. However, you're judged rightly and there's a blessing in the partaking of the supper. As a matter of fact, that bread that's broken is the body of Christ. The blood of Christ is in the cup, right? Not literally, but spiritually. Not uh, physically, I should say, but spiritually, right? And that is the flesh of Christ that was broken. What you're doing is eating and drinking the world's salvation. And by doing that, you are participating in it. You're participating in the salvation of all of the cosmos. When Christ's blood was poured out onto the earth, the world was made clean, right? It wasn't made dirty. His blood cleansed. What happens when Christ touched something unclean? 
it becomes clean. When he touched a leper, he didn't become unclean. The leper became clean, right? When blood is poured out, it becomes unclean. You're not allowed to touch dead flesh and those sorts of things, right? Of people. You become unclean when you do that. But when Christ does it, when Christ died and his blood's poured out, the land itself becomes clean. The, the created order, the cosmos, became clean again, right? Read about the Day of Atonement, why that was there, what the sacrifice did. It says that the place itself, not just the people, but the place, the, the uh, tabernacle and the land was made clean so God could dwell there through that sacrifice. But they had to do it every single year. Right? So when Christ did it, he did it once for all. He cleansed everything. The world has been made clean again. Okay? So what we're doing when we're eating and drinking, we're participating in that salvation. Right? So it's important. It's kind of a big deal. Now, when you do it wrongly, that sacrifice, what that represents, you know, I'm not saying the, again, I don't want to be confused with Catholicism here. I have to be very careful with my words. It's unfortunate that we have to do this and make so many qualifications. But um, it's that figure that's in the cup and in the bread, right? that picture that's presented to us that has that reality so much so that we can truly say that we're eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood spiritually um, when we do it wrongly when we partake wrongly we're eating and drinking our own judgment right even as believers there are consequences to how we partake of the supper right does that make sense so, when we look and we see sacrificial language being spoken of by uh, of, of Edom, by God, you know, they had no substitute. They were those lambs that were being led to the slaughter. So, this is how you should understand your own salvation. This is what's going to happen if Christ is not your substitute, or as a believer, if you eat and drink wrongly, you know, you are going to bear the weight of the guilt that you have. For the believer, thank God, it's not eternal. For the unbeliever, it is. So we should take those things very seriously. The Lord has a sword, and it is sated with blood. That should terrify us in a very real and powerful sense. Anyways, wild auction shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Right, so there's a parallel here between God and the land. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of rec- recompense for the cause of Zion. It parallels uh, Luke, the uh, day of vengeance that is spoken about in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. I, sh- I need to stop getting sidetracked, I'm sorry. Uh, the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie 
waste. Nothing shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortress. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And uh, wild animals shall meet with hyenas, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Sounds like God made a covenant with the hawks and owls and jackals and ostriches and everything else, right? To dwell in the land of Edom. Uh... But what we see there is de-creation language, clearly. I mean, <laughs> very, very... The, the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies shall roll up like... What's, what's being said here? What is God saying when he talks in this manner? Well, when he talks about all the hosts of heaven rotting away, and the skies rolling up like a scroll, that is directly parallel verse 12. It's nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing, right? So what are the hosts of heaven? What are the stars of heaven? We, we've heard about this before. The sun there, right? It's there to govern the moons there to govern the night, etc. Now, they're pictures of the ruling authorities of a, of a, of a land, right? So the kings and princes of Edom in this context and talks about the stars will be no more. Now, stars. stars also appear in the Bible as angelic hosts, right? The angelic beings. Well, especially in the Old Testament, there were angelic beings that stood behind the rulers of kingdoms. We read about this very specifically in places like, uh, I believe, what is it, Daniel 12, right? 10, 12, um, where we see Daniel... Uh, receiving a vision and the angel telling him that the prince of Persia, Persia opposed him, right? He took him a while to get to him because the prince of Persia, that was an angelic being, was opposing one of God's angels. And he's called specifically the prince of Persia because he was the ruler. He was given dominion over uh, the land of Persia. We see it other places as well. Satan's described as being um, standing behind the king of Tyre. Uh, very specifically in Scripture. But, so when it talks about those falling, God's going to bring not just the earthly rulers, but the heavenly rulers down as well when he judges this land. Now, it says also here that there's going to be nothing. There's going to be nothing left. 
It's not going to be a place for men anymore. What was the divine mandate at the beginning of creation? That's right. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Well, here, God is giving the land back over completely to the wilderness. He's taken it from man completely. Right? This is a reversal of the created order itself. He's stripping the land from men and giving it back over to the wild beasts of the field and birds of the heaven. Right? Man was supposed to subdue the earth, but here, God is taking it away. There's a complete reversal of the order of creation. That's why we call this, or I call it at least, decreation language, because it's a reversal of the created order. Now let's go back to Micah and see what it says here in verse 6 about Samaria. Well, verse 6 is in 7, I suppose. Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. That's good enough. We could stop there. You see the difference? The land was not given over to the wild beasts of the field. It wasn't given over to the birds of the heaven. It remained in the possession of men. But the city itself was going to be destroyed. Its foundations were going to be uncovered and exposed. Its stones. Because remember, it's a high place. It's going to be brought low. It's going to, stones are going to be poured out in a valley. Right? We spoke about high places and their significance numerous times, right? You guys remember the significance of a high place? What is a high place? It is desired ground in battle. But I'm talking in a spiritual sense. What's a high place? That's, yeah, the, 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 the Israel is the land, and that, it does include the mountains, specifically Mount Jerusalem, because that's where God dwells. So that's the highest of high places. Right? But um, the high place, what were you going to say, Jerry? The place where men went to worship, and they went into the Tower of Babel was a high place they were building that's right. to try to reach God. Yeah, well, to try to conquer God, I would say. Specifically, they were trying to make a war on heaven. The, the, the Tower of Babel, that's a good example, was probably a ziggurat. What's a ziggurat look like? Yeah, what's a pyramid look like? What? A mountain. Yeah, that's right, it does. It looks like a mountain. Where do you go to meet God? On a mountain. All right, always. That's what a high place is. A high place is up. Where's heaven? Up. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a picture like you're going up. So this high place, this place of, and what is heaven, really, truly, you know, in relation to the earth, I mean. Hmm. What's up? Well, it is the most high place, but what is, he- I mean, the third heaven would be, right? Because there are layers in heaven as well, in there? But um, what, what is heaven in relation to the earth? Well, the, everyone understood and knows that the heavens control the earth, Right? I mean, the stars direct the courses of men, right? Thank your lucky stars, eh? You've heard that before, right? Right? I mean, there's in a paper today, you go and you could read your horoscope and you could see exactly how the stars have directed the course of your life, right? Yeah, if you're born under this star, then this is going to happen, etc., right? Everybody understands that, 
I'm not saying it's real or true, but I'm just saying this is the view that people have of the world, even to this very day, is my point. Right? The heavens control the earth. So if you can get up there and control the heavens, which is probably what they wanted to do at Babel, or what magic is, right? Or what most pagan worship is. Pagan worship is mostly magic, trying to appease the gods so that they will do things for you, right? Trying to get the gods to do what you will, bend them to your will through whatever means, through sacrifice or bargaining or, you know, ritual practices, yeah? Then you can manipulate and control things down here. Everybody understands that, yeah? And sometimes we can even pray like that as Christians, you know? And, I mean, geez, there's a movement within uh, the church. It's very unfortunate, right? That whole name it and claim it thing, is just, it goes right along with that, yeah? That um, wild charismaticism. I'm not saying all charismatics are like that, but there is a sect of charismatics that, that uh, do practice you know, ancient uh, pagan, well, <laughs> yeah, very uh, pagan practices. But anyways, they have a pagan understanding in, of, the, of the world. But anyway, um, so God's going to take Samaria, this, this, this high place, this, this control room for the earth, for the land of Israel. Hold on one second. And he's going to tear it down and scatter it into a valley. He's going to bring it low, right? Go ahead. What are you going to say? Right. Yeah, that's a that is a huge one. Yeah, God they did choose um Samaria. However, these were the capitals. These might not have been the highest places, right, in the land of Israel, but symbolically, spiritually they were, right? So it's a significant that God says that he's going to take its stones and pour down her stones into a valley, right? And he's going to uncover her foundations. What do you think that means? Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The foundations are. Well, go ahead. What were you going to say? Right. Yeah. Do you build your house on solid rock or sinking sand? That's right. From the parable that Christ told. And what is that solid rock? Christ. Christ is a solid rock, but specifically when he's talking in that parable, what does he say? Yes. Say it is the word. word. That's right. His words. Do you build your house on his words or something else? Your own understanding. What happens when a man founds a town, right, and it's not built on the word of God? It's built on something else. What happens? Well, what are we told? We're told that if 
the Lord doesn't build the house. Those who labor, labor, labor in vain, right? But check this out. Habakkuk, you don't have to turn here. I'm just going to read something to you, okay? Habakkuk um, chapter 2, verse 12 says this. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity, right? So when God says he's going to expose their foundation, and then the very next verse says, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gather them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. You know, he's speaking about their sin, specifically their iniquity. Now, if we go back to Micah, check this out. There's a parallel in Micah as well. In Micah 3, verse 10. He, well, I'll start in verse 9 to give you a little context, right? Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. See, so that's the foundation that God's going to expose. That's what he's going to do. The land, as we said, is still man's and not given to the beasts. It's not going to be turned into a wilderness, but it's going to uh, be a vineyard, which is also very important, very significant. Um, Again, I should actually say this before I talk more about that uh, that foundation of Samaria that sh- that won't stand. Um, it's indicative in terms of the judgment that the fact that it's going to be um, a place for planting vineyards is it in, in, indicates that it's going to be a judgment on the high, and it's going to be given to the lowly. Right? We saw this very specifically in Jeremiah. If, well, if you go and read Jeremiah, when Babylon came through and judged, he took away all of the nobles of uh, Judah. And Assyria did the same thing in northern Israel, took away all their nobles, all their high and mighty, and gave it over to um, the low. But specifically in Jeremiah, it says that the poor were given um, the land, to plant vineyards, right? And so that's it's very significant there as well on why vineyards. But um, we could think about that later. We're running out of time, and I'm not getting very far. I'm going way too slow through this stuff. <laughs> oh, man. Anyways, so let's look at... Uh, yes, Samaria was founded on idolatry and bloodshed, right? And God will not let that stand. That city needs to be torn down. All right? Idolatry, very clear in verse 7. The fear of a prostitute, etc. That's, that's um, Hosaic language from Hosea. Uh, Hosaic language, if you want, at the end of verse 7. Uh, if you would like, you can go back and listen to when we spoke about Hosea to listen to more about prostitutes because I know everybody finds prostitutes fascinating. So, anyways. By looking at that, one thing you guys should take away from this or at least ponder is, well, where are we? (laughs) What kind of land are we? What kind of judgment are we going to be facing? Yeah, Is is this going to be a land given over to destruction, decreation, or is this going to be a land 
that has hope. That it's not completely without hope, but God has to take away our foundations so that we might rebuild. Yeah? So what happens if you destroy foundations? Well, you've got to rebuild. Right? So I would say that hopefully we're more like the one where the foundations have to be ripped away and we need to be rebuilt. How was America founded? Was America founded on bloodshed? Was it? I would say so. As a matter of fact, modern America, the America that we live in today was founded not in 1776 or whatever, but I would say closer to the mid or early, rather, 1800s under the Lincoln administration, right? And a civil war. He changed the face of America. 400,000 Americans were killed for what? Well, for the ending of slavery, allegedly. That came later. He started the war before he even talked about that. It was more for, I don't know, power? We, could, there's a, we don't need to go into that. But regardless of what, he wasn't going to let the South leave. So there was a war that was started, and blood was spilled. A lot of blood was spilled. And it set a precedent. This is not a rule by righteousness. This is ruled by power. What happens if you found a city? What does it mean to found a city on bloodshed? What does that even mean? How does one found a city on bloodshed and iniquity and idolatry and things like this? Well, specifically bloodshed, if you found a city on bloodshed, your starting place is power, right? How do you rule? Do you rule by righteousness? No. You rule by sheer force, by sheer power. Right? And when you do something like that, the law is flexible. The law is arbitrary. It is what the powerful says it is. Right? And if the powerful is good, it'll be good for a while. And it was good for a while here. But as time went on, we, our founding principle is power. If the wicked gain power, what's going to happen? Well... Righteousness has no place. It's not the, the measure, the standard. The standard is power. So we get wicked rulers and we get wicked laws. So we have that iniquity problem. So let's pray again that that foundation would be destroyed. But if that is the case, then we're going to have to suffer. Yeah? What happens when a city is torn down and its stones are thrown into a valley? Well, it sucks for everybody. That's what happens, you know, the righteous and the wicked. It's going to be hard for all of us. Yeah. But we have to love righteousness more than we love our comfort. We have to love righteousness more than we love our stuff, you know. It's going to be tough. But we need to pray that God would expose the foundations and take them away so that we can rebuild, right? But we need a people who can rebuild in terms of righteousness. So that means we need a church that loves righteousness and understands righteousness. In order for 
in order to have a church that loves righteousness and understands righteousness, we need a church that loves the law of God, right? So, judgment begins where? At the house of God, that's right. So before we even start talking about judging or the judgment on the nation, right, and rebuilding, we need to pray that we have a revival within the very church itself, right? Because the church doesn't seem to love the law of God anymore. <laughs> it did at one time, but it really doesn't anymore. The time when we need it the most, we have big names talking against the law. It's very sad. So let's uh, pray that we can have righteous men who love righteousness, at least in our churches, right? So anyway, are there any other questions or comments or thoughts as we look at this? Go ahead, Erica. Yeah. Okay. The first heaven, I'd say, would be the air, right? The second heaven, I would say, would be the expanse where the stars are. And the third heaven is the place where God, God's throne room, right? First, second, third heaven. Yeah. Something like that. Well, I mean, it is something like that. It's close to that. At least there's some more to it, but uh, that's a quick answer. Any other questions, comments? Remember, Paul says he was caught up into the third heaven. He's talking about being caught up into the very throne room of God, into God's city, the heavenly city, the, the real one. So any other questions or comments? No? Okay. So let's pray and get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we do thank you, Lord, for your word, the depth and riches uh, that we find in it, Father God, are, are immense and, and, and should be treasured more than jewels and fine gems, Father. We do give you praise that you've um, taught us and you've uh, given us your spirit so that we can understand it, Lord. And we pray, Father, that, that we would be truly changed by your word that we would be molded and made more into the image of your Son through it, Father. Please help us to take these things and apply them to our lives. Lord, help us to uh, understand how it is that you do deal with the world itself, how you um, interact with it, Lord, your creation, Father God. You've um, told us specifically how you do things. Please give us wisdom so we can understand it, Father. And we do pray for your church that it would be a, church that is uh, marked by obedience, a church that loves righteousness and hates injustice and iniquity, Father, a church that is bold and will stand for righteousness, not righteousness as the world sees righteousness, but righteousness as you have described in your law, Father God. You've given us a standard for justice. Please help us to believe it and live it, Father. But now, Lord, as we seek to worship you, please uh, be with us and guide us. Prepare the hearts of your people to receive your word, Lord God. May your word fall on the good soil of our hearts that it might grow and increase and bear fruit in, in all of our lives, Father God. Knit us together uh, as one people, 
Lord, who are worshiping you um, in spirit and in truth, Father. Uh, Please allow us to come before you with clean hands and a pure heart, Father, and be with Pastor as he speaks forth your word. Allow us to hear you speaking through him, Lord God, in response to our prayer and praise uh, uh, of you, Lord. Again, please be pleased and glorified in the worship service today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.